In partnership with New Smile, the teeth alignment and whitening experts, the Pro Sports Podcasters are giving away two New Smile teeth whitening foam solutions. All you need to do to qualify for this fantastic giveaway is go to our website, www.prosportspodcasters.com, and sign up for the free newsletter. The winners will be announced in the last newsletter of November, so sign up now. Brighten up your smile with New Smile. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters, with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world, covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Postforce Podcasters. I'm your host, me, Wallace Bruce, otherwise known as NWB, and I'm joined by Mr. Colbert Durant, otherwise known as Kobe. How you doing? I'm doing good, and I'm kind of amped up today because we got a multi-sport athlete. There we go. Guest of many talents. Before we get to that, we want to share some multiple value for our listeners. So, in case you missed it, we have a new website, prosportspodcasters.com. So, in fact, pause the podcast right now, visit it, and then come back to me. I'll be, I'll be waiting. See, I'm still here. Now, on this website, we not only have posts and cool content, but we also have deals, sponsorship deals to help you save a little bit of money and get some bonus stuff. So, make sure you're checking out the website regularly because there's new stuff coming day in and day out. Much like this podcast episode, which you can also catch on the website. And our guest today is a very special guest because she's not only a gold medalist, an Olympic gold medalist, but also a Paralympic medalist. That's a very rare feat. And she's a cyclist, professional cyclist. We're going to get into that and more. So let's bring her out. Kristen Kitt. How's it going, Kristen? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me here today, you guys. It's a pleasure to have you on. And you recently finished a regatta in Boston. We did, actually. We got the Olympic 8 back together in Boston, Massachusetts for the 2021 Head of the Charles Regatta. And so some of us hadn't been in a boat since since Tokyo, so it had been almost three months. And it was a bit of a shock to the system, but it was nice to get the, the girls back together and actually celebrate a little bit, which is something we didn't get to do in Tokyo. Right. And yeah, I guess Tokyo was a different experience than some of the previous Olympic Games and also Paralympic Games that you've been involved with because... There were no fans, and I guess it was a bit more of a muted uh, event. But still, has it sunk in that you were a part of such an experience just recently? You know, that's a really great question. I think it still feels like a little bit of a dream simply because we're so focused on the process. And when it actually happened, it was such a shock. And then to leave less than 24 hours after we won, I think it kind of leaves the memory a bit of a dream state for me personally. That being said, every day that goes by, I just become more and more grateful for just the chance to compete. As you alluded to, this games was different. And I mean, we didn't really even know if we were going to be able to compete even when we were over there, just with how COVID restrictions and quarantine restrictions were going in Japan. I mean, there was still that sense of just uncertainty. So it still feels like a dream. Yes. But the, the, the overwhelming, you know, sense of gratitude is, is really big for me. Excellent. And I must say, we're grateful to have you on and, we're also grateful for your achievements. So 
Yeah, were you able to celebrate as a group with the eight after the event or no? You know, it's funny, actually, the last time that we were together with the lot, like the crew, was actually just after we got back to the Olympic Village and we all got together in the main apartment where the girls were staying and we actually watched the race together. And when we were watching the race together, I mean, I didn't know it was going to be the last time that we were together. And so it was kind of special to watch the race, have a laugh, talk about what everyone was thinking about, because it's so funny to hear nine different takes on how the race went or things that were flashing through people's heads. And then that was it. So we actually really haven't celebrated together as, as, as the crew. We In Boston, we had a chance to come together, but we had two spares in the boat, both who were huge contributors to the boat in Tokyo. But we haven't, you know, the nine of us haven't celebrated yet. Yeah, that's got to be completely unique in this situation. I was wondering, I mean, it's only a few years away now for a chance for you to defend. What are the odds you'll have the same crew? Oh, that's the question of the hour. I think it's going to be challenging to know that. There's a lot going on in rowing Canada right now. We don't have a head coach yet. We don't know who the coach would be. So there's a lot of change that's coming. Obviously, we all hope that our coach, Michelle Darville, is going to be leading the charge. But of course, we just we don't know what's going on. So for me, at least, that has a big impact on whether, you know, I continue right now. I'm committed to Paris 2024. But of course, you know, there needs to be some things that get nailed down before that actually comes to fruition. I think there's a lot that can happen in three years. Yes, it's a short amount of time, but it also can be a really long amount of time when you're in the daily grind. I mean, we train six to seven days a week. We train upwards of six hours a day sometimes. And it's, it's rowing is one of those sports. It's, it's a grind. And so it'll be interesting to see who comes back and who sticks it out. I think it's unlikely to see exactly the same crew lineup, but I think you'll actually see a lot of the same faces. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so I guess what got you into rowing? Because when I think about rowing, I think about my days in high school and I was singled out to join the rowing team, but I liked my beauty sleep. I didn't want to get up at five in the morning. Yeah. So what, how did you get into rowing? Oh, that's a funny story. And I fully agree with your beauty sleep comment. I do not know to this day how I got through high school and university rowing. So fully understand that. No judgment. So for me, I'm from St. Catharines, Ontario. It's the, you know, somewhat disputed center of rowing in Canada. So there's a, a really vibrant high school um, program there. And it's it's very accessible, actually, for just normal people to try the sport in their, in their high schools. And so I was one of those people. I, you know, was 70 pounds in grade nine, and I was a very excited and competitive distance runner, but I was very mediocre. Like I was bad. And uh, so I wanted to try a sport that I could be competitive in. And, you know, I didn't really think it was going to be rowing, you know, at 70 pounds, like you're not really a rower. But then the coaches at the time, they threw me into the coxswain seat and said, you're going to be a coxswain. And so there's two things there. The first one is, is actually my grandfather. He helped start the rowing program at my high school, John Kitt. And uh, it's kind of neat because he's not a rower himself. He's a teacher and the students needed a teacher advisor. So he stepped in and he filled that role without, again, really knowing much about the sport. And then, so I think because of, uh, you know, a good memory of him, uh, the coaches, when I, you know, rolled into the program, they, they helped me out a little bit and they helped me find my feet um, inside of the program. And then the second piece there is, I mean, I, 
you know, I'm, I'm an introvert actually. And I, I didn't really fit in too well, you know, in, in grade school. I mean, there was a great community in my K to eight school, but I, I never really fit in. I was always happy to read a book. And so grade nine, you know, I arrived at a much bigger high school and still really hadn't found my group yet. And so in, in that first, you know, few weeks, few months that I was on the rowing team trying out for a spot, you know, I was accepted by these people as just a part of the rower. So, you know, this is all to say that I was very lucky with my timing coming into the sport because there was a good group of kids that they wanted to train hard. They wanted to work hard. They wanted to win, but they also, they really cared for each other and looked out for each other. And so, you know, for whatever reason, they welcomed me into their group. And, you know, I was, I was a rower as part of the rowing crowd. And, and that really gave me a sense of belonging. So, I mean, I think that is kind of, that's kind of how I got started in the sport. I mean, I was, again, very, very mediocre athlete, you know, not really that great, but I was excited and I was passionate to try something new. So that's, that's about how it started. There you go. And as the coxswain, you're essentially the, the play caller. You're calling the shots in the boat. So take our listeners through what that entails. Yeah. So there's nothing like it. I mean, the best thing I could liken it to is either a quarterback or a jockey. So I actually sit in the boat facing the rowers and I'm responsible for steering a really long boat. It's about 64 feet made of carbon fiber uh, straight down a two kilometer racing course. And so what's interesting is the rowers are actually traveling backwards. So they cannot see the direction that they're actually racing. So I'm responsible for the safety of these rowers traveling backwards, working as hard as they can. The boat itself is worth about $65,000. So it's some very expensive plastic that's under us. And, you know, so that safety and steering component, that is really big part of my job, actually. And to put things in context, you know, these boats are quite long, but they're very narrow. They have to be very aerodynamic. And so, you know, a wind gust can, can change the boat course very quickly. Power imbalance can change the boat course very quickly. So I actually have to be very quick to respond to uh, course changes and make a course correction. I have to be very careful how I do it, though, because if I was to steer very quickly, it can offset the boat. And that that's not good for anyone. That you know makes it unpredictable for the rowers. Now, the other piece that I'm responsible for is actually executing race tactics. So I'm, I'm responsible for calling the rowers to the race, executing the race plan, reading the race, adapting to it, and then motivation. In a practice situation, I'm responsible for, you know, some of these things, but in a practice situation, I mean, the rowers don't want to be hear, hear me squawking at them for two hours about how hard they need to push with their legs. So I take on more of a, um, like a technique role. Rowing similar to swimming is, is quite technical. So I use boat feel. I use my, what I can see. I use feedback from the rowers to inform my calls in a practice situation. Off paper, my role is a little bit different. Uh, in a training center environment, we train together most months of the year, as I said before, six to seven days a week, multiple times a day. And so there's a huge interpersonal component that comes into play. As a coxswain, I do not have an oar. I cannot make the boat go faster from my own physicality. So the way that I have to make a boat go faster is through elevating others. And this piece comes in so strongly in a environment that is a pressure cooker to begin with. So I really have to actually get to know my teammates super well, both as people and as athletes. That's a really important piece is, is you know, I have to know what makes them tick, you know, on both sides of their life. And so I think this is, you know, as an elite coxswain, this is a really big part of the job that no one really talks about. Mm-hmm. It's like a goalkeeper in soccer. It's like a, 
Oh, how do I, how do I say? If you do well, you're meant to do it. And if you don't do well, it's it's all your fault. Exactly. I I grew up around the uh, the idea that a coxing a good coxswain can help the rowers, you know, with their race plan, and a bad one can lose the race. So I 100 percent ascribe to that. There we go. So to win a women's eights gold medal, it takes more than just power in the boat. Obviously, it takes a fair amount of strategy. What I'm wondering is is how often. Does your game plan just get thrown out the window during a race, or how often are you sticking to the original game plan you had set out? That's a loaded question. Um, all right, if my rowers are listening, I would like them to turn off it off right now. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, I think uh, this is actually one area where my 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 rowers trust me a lot, and I think you know you get into these world championship races or Olympic games or Paralympic games racing, and you think you've got a race plan, you think you know how it's going to go, and and then something changes and it has to get thrown out the window. That happened in Tokyo, that happened in Rio, and that happened in London. And what helps me with this actually is the bike racing. You know, I, I've been racing road for a little while. Again, I'm not that great. I'm kind of the person that works on the road racing team for others to help elevate them themselves because I don't really, I'm not really a sprinter. I'm not even, I'm a kind of a decent climber, but even then, you know, it's more about elevating other people. So this is all to say that bike racing happens really fast. I mean, if you're racing a criterium, those races are short, they're fast, they're punchy. I mean, moves are split second decisions while you're going, you know, 50 kilometers an hour. In rowing racing, we're racing around 22 kilometers an hour, and it just takes so much wattage to change the speed of the boat. In that, the bike racing is actually what has really honed in my skills over the last, you know, five, six years, because for me, rowing racing happens a lot slower now because I've made so many mistakes as a road cyclist. So yeah, the tactics do change mid-race sometimes, but the good thing is, is I've had some really good coaches over the years who identify that it's important to talk as a crew about what is the plan if X happens or what is the plan if Y happens or what is the plan if H happens. So the rowers have an idea of what all the different plans are, but it's my responsibility to read the race and, and adjust accordingly. Now, I like that you use the term wattage there because I know that's directly from cycling. I have some experience with cycling myself and I'm kind of wondering, you've already said to compete an elite level as a rower is a daily, daily grind. Where did you find the time to get involved in competitive cycling? <laughs> I didn't. Um, when I was racing pro, I was on a UCI continental team. in Stefan Le Premier Racing. They're based in Vancouver. And I mean, I got to give a shout out to them because they are just doing such fantastic things for the women's cycling community in, in Canada. Um, but anyways, they, uh, they gave me a contract um, two years in a row. I was really lucky to have it. And I mean, it, my days were busy. I, I, and they're still busy, but it was basically I did sport all day. So I'd wake up, go to rowing practice. I'd fit my three to four hour ride in with intervals right after we got off the water. And then I would go to the second row, which was usually around 2.33 p.m. And then I'd go home. You know, I'd usually fit it in in between rows and then just go home and, and be a potato for the rest of the night <laughs> and then go do it all over again. And so, yeah, I didn't really find the time. I just made time because I really believed and I still believe this, that the, the road cycling is what helped me take the next step as a coxswain, both from a, like a race tactics point of view, but also from just a 
an understanding of what the rowers go through on a daily basis. I mean, to go and do, you know, a four by four minute max interval workout, we do similar workouts on the water. And so for me to go through the pain of that, to go through the mental shifts throughout that workout, it was just, it's giving me my edge. Now, being a competitive cyclist, obviously you're familiar with power meters. Yep. Is there a equivalent device in rowing that measures wattage and power? There is. It's not as widely used as, you know, your your market power meter yeah. for cycling because, I mean, rowing, it's an amateur niche sport. There's less money in it. There's less commercial opportunity in it, but there are devices. So there's two actually. One is from a company in the U.S. named Neeson Kellerman, and uh, they have a unit that just attaches right onto where we put the oars. It's called the oar lock. Yeah. And then the other unit is called uh, the peach system. It's a little bit more expensive, lots of cables, a little bit user less user friendly, but yeah, it gives you a little bit of bit a little bit more data, a little bit different data. So they're both pretty good units. And the way that they measure the power is um, actually a strain gauge, similar to a cycling power meter and it's it's actually built into the ore lock so that's how we we get we get data and we actually we used a decent amount of data actually over the last year in our build up to the um, Olympics so for me it was nice because I mean I'm just so used to working with power meters and in cycling and so you know in rowing to be able to have that I think that was a, a really good thing for us. No, that's awesome. I, I didn't even know those existed. That that would be a really cool practice tool. Yeah, not many people use them. Just, I mean, they're expensive to a point where it's a bit prohibitive. But, you know, in rowing, it's a very technical sport. So I think it's really important to demystify any aspects that we can. And now, of course, you know, boat feel and being able to feel what your body is doing is just so important in rowing. So it's important, you know, not to lose sight of that. But if you can marry the the two together, you can get really, really fast combination. All right, cool. Now, when it comes to road cycling, we're actually going to see the, the Tour de France return in, in the women's format for next year. Is that, firstly, is that kind of racing something that you want to get into? the longer form? You know, when I when I signed with Instafund, I had thought that I wanted to leave rowing, pursue uh, road cycling. And I think it's really hard to get opportunity as a woman. When I first got into road cycling, I just kind of assumed that there would be equal opportunity, development, money, that kind of thing. Um, and that was, you know, kind of late. I was in my mid-20s when I got into it. And uh, I'm 33 now. And you know, as I progress through my career, it's just really hard to get race experience, really hard to get opportunity. And also when I was getting into it, I was, I was also based in Ontario and it's even less opportunity there. Actually, you know, in my opinion, I mean, some people might digress, but that's that was my experience. You know, I, I just think I'm at a point in my career now that I... I think it's too late for me, to be totally honest. I mean, I would have loved to pursue it, but at the same time, you know, with the the postponement, I mean, that was an, ex an extra year, um, this postponement of the Tokyo Olympics. I think, you know, that ship has sailed for me a little bit. I'm pretty happy with my career. I mean, juggling two, you know, high-performance sports at the same time, I think was, I'm pretty, it's something I'm really proud of, actually. I mean, I did get to race some UCI races with Instafund and my former team as well, and Super grateful for those opportunities. But, you know, with the postponement of COVID, you know, I just don't see that happening for myself. Fair enough. Like you said, you've had an amazing career. You've won multiple gold medals. That's more than <laughs> yeah. many of us can say that we can Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a hungry person, though. And I mean, I, I've shifted what I want to do. I'm getting more into the gravel racing side, actually, which is, I mean, a little bit more of a fun format, a little bit more relaxed. I mean, 
you can, it can train it a different way, which is, is fun too. The road cycling, it's all about fitness. It's all about effort. And I mean, a little bit being able to read the race, but there's so much fitness involved And um, you know, the gravel cycling, you still need the fitness, but you can, you can go for mountain bike rides and work on skill and, and that, you know, sense of adventure really appeals to me. So that's what I'll be focusing on next year. Now, are you aware of the virtual simulation bike racing systems like Road Grand Tours or Zwift or anything? Yeah, a little bit. I've, I'm not a Zwifter. I uh, I had to do it over the Olympics because we were in such quarantine in, in Tokyo. But I'll be honest, I am the kind of person where if it's four degrees and pouring rain, I will choose that over sitting on the trainer. Okay, so that's why you're kind of based on the West Coast where you can exactly. actually do it year-round if <laughs> exactly. necessary. Okay. Uh, now, let me be clear. It's not pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about getting on your bike, you know, end of January and you're already soaked 10 minutes in uh, into a, a, you know, a four hour ride. It's not enjoyable, but I just, you know, for me mentally being outside, I, I just enjoy that a lot more than sitting on a trainer. I will say though, that the, the Zwift app that totally got me through Tokyo. I had took over my gravel bike with me and hooked it up to the trainer because we couldn't really leave the village. We couldn't leave our, our staging site. So I had the Zwift going and was, you know, off in a corner by myself and it, it could have been really bad, but quite frankly, you know, between the smart trainer and the Zwift, it, it just totally got me through my training. Yeah, my, my wife has actually been on Zwift. It's her third year now. She's a big Zwifter. Yeah. And I noticed, I was just bringing it up because I've noticed it's a place where a lot of uh, professional cyclists, as their career is rolling down, they can extend it by going the virtual route, right? Yeah, and it's it's a pretty cool platform, actually, um, because it... You know, it does give people an opportunity. One of my friends locally, I mean, she's such a talented cyclist and um, she ended up exiting the professional world and she she's one of the strongest people out there on Zwift and it just, you know, it allowed her, you know, she had a contract with the Zwift team for a little while and it's exactly as you say, it allowed her to extend her career as she was finishing school. Yeah, no, cool. Nice. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at New Smile. Just use the code PROSPORTS to get $150 off any of their teeth aligning kits. So turn up the dial on your smile with New Smile. Now on to the show. Have they named a boat after you yet? No, and I don't want that. I absolutely <laughs> do not want a boat named after me until I'm dead. Yeah, and I've been pretty vocal about this as well. <laughs> Why not? You know, I just think the people who built the sport in Canada they're the ones we should be naming the boats after. I mean, there's just so many legends that after they retire from rowing, they kind of disappear, especially on the women's side, they disappear into normal life a little bit. And I think we need to be naming boats after those people. I also think, you know, there's also people, I mean, I'm from St. Catharines, huge rowing community there that's been around for a long time. There's a lot of builders of the club there that we should be naming boats after. Fair enough. Now, just sticking with the career side of things, when we uh, look forward let's say, after your competitive career comes to a close, are you looking to stay within the sport of either cycling or rowing, maybe as a coach or a, a mentor? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll probably disappear from the surface of the earth for a few years, to be totally honest. I, I Sport has been my life from a very young age. I mean, grade nine is when I got very competitive about rowing and it's around grade 11 when I realized my dream to compete for Canada. So I'm 33 now and I'll, I'll let you guys do the math on that one, but it's been a very long time. And so um, I, I need a break from sport when I'm done. I, I do love the racing aspect of it, but I'm, I will need a, a bit of a hiatus. That being said, I will give back, you know, both from a mentorship standpoint, but also from supporting other athletes, maybe f with a, a governance 
um, focus. So whether it's with the Canadian Olympic Committee or WADA, but I would love to be uh, an athlete rep on a on a board or um, like a working group, just because I feel like at this point I have so much experience. Not the most. I mean, there's a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me out there, but I, I feel like I've got a valid perspective that I would like to share. From the mentorship standpoint, though, I mean, as I said before, as a coxswain, it's a skill-based role. I mean, you have to learn and you have to experience things to be good at it. And when I was coming up through the ranks, I didn't have a mentor. In fact, the person I needed to get past to get to where I am today had been to eight Olympic Games and she did not want anything to do with me. In fact, she actively tried to, at every turn, go against me. So I'm very passionate about not letting that be the situation for the next generation. And then also, like, I just... I want there to be a pathway. You know, in Canada, there was not a pathway. I mean, other than myself, I think there's maybe like three female coxswains who've been able to represent Canada at the Olympic Games since rowing got into the Olympic Games. Let me think. One, two, three, four. I'm the fifth. Yeah, so I'm the fifth. So that's not very many if you think about 1976 until now. So there's a pathway. And if there's any young coxswains listening to this podcast, there is a pathway. You can do it you know, there's opportunity now. I mean, we've, we've opened up the door. And so from, from the mentorship standpoint, I will stay involved in the sport because I think, you know, young, young women and young men need to be helped with my lived experience. And that's something that shouldn't be a secret. It shouldn't be dark arts. And I'm over the moon to continue with that. In fact, you know, I, I'm actually working with, I think probably seven coxswains right now, mentoring them. And I'm just hopeful that, you know, one of them is going to come through. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I got, I question this maybe a little bit outside the box for you, but I mean, I'd say for the average layperson fan of the Olympics, fan of sports, they might see the Olympic medal as the pinnacle of, of rowing, but is it really, I mean, there's a rich history with the Ivy league schools, some of the British universities, some of the European tour events. I'm wondering what you would consider to be the kind of pinnacle event as far as a rower goes. I think that really depends on where you're brought up. For me, I'm from St. Catharines, as I said, and I was always brought up to believe that the Olympics was the pinnacle. Now that I've been, you know, elsewhere in the world, I've had the opportunity to, you know, live and work in Europe. I've had the opportunity to live and train in the U.S. I can see the value of regattas like the NCAA championship for women or the IRA regatta for men. Those regattas are so competitive. Like it's just, it's absolutely fantastic what the U.S. has has done for rowing worldwide. And going to both of those regattas, it's basically an under 23 world championship. Those times, those eights are putting down so fast. So, I mean, winning an NCAA or winning an IRA, I think is right up there, you know, with winning a world championship. Not sure for me if I can agree that it's the same as a Paralympics or Olympics, but, you know, they are training so hard and they're going so fast. So there's definitely, you know, a lot of respect for those guys and and girls. And then obviously the Oxford-Cambridge boat race, huge part of the sport, so much tradition there. I mean, they also just train so hard and the level of commitment those men and women put into the sport is just 
it's, you know, unparalleled because of the tradition that's steeped. I mean, when those crews to go race, they know there's, you know, probably millions of people watching that race. So there's a lot of pressure on that one. To be honest, that one's actually still on my bucket list. So okay. we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But, and then you've, you know, you've got other regattas, you know, throughout the world, you know, Australia, New Zealand, they both have domestic regattas that are just so coveted. And, you know, obviously Holland being such a big rowing, rowing country, there's, there's regattas there that are just really prestigious. So, I mean, for me, obviously the Olympics has been my focus. It's been my dream, my passion for several years. So for me, it's probably one of the bigger events, same with the Paralympics, but um, yeah, there's, there's definitely races that are quite up there. And at the Canadian collegiate university level, what's the big event there? Yeah. So I'm going to be a little bit biased. So, um, so CUs, uh, CURCs, that's Canadian University Rowing Championships. That's kind of the big one everyone trains for. It happens, uh, in October, end of October every year, beginning of November, depending on where it is. I have connection, obviously, to University of British Columbia. So the big race for us was actually always the UBC and University of Victoria dual. So it's a match race. Okay. And that one, that one's a pretty big deal for us. And there's a beautiful trophy that goes along with it. And it's just, there's a lot of tradition in there for us. Oh, right on. There we go. Now, I've got a question. When you've competed in the Paralympics, it's, it's typically been as a, a, a mixed boat. Is that something that, yep. that we could one day see in this, uh, the Summer Olympics? Yeah, so the Paralympic movement is is separate from the Olympics. It's got its own different set of values and its own intention is just a little bit different. Paralympics happens two weeks after the Olympic Games, so it really is its own standalone event. Interesting fact is that there's actually, by number of athletes, the Summer Paralympics is actually bigger than the Winter Olympics. So I thought that statistic was kind of cool and kind of interesting. And so, no, you know, the Cox 4, you know, the Paralympic events, I doubt they'll ever reach the Olympics. And it's it's good that way because it is actually a very different event. And, um, you know, and I'm proud of the, the fact that it's its own standalone event. And initially when I first started, I mean, I've been back and forth between the able-bodied and para team for several years now. When I first started, I mean – I walked onto a team, not walked on, I had to try out for and make a team that was very successful and had, you know, quite a bit of respect from the teammates uh, on the able-bodied side, but very low traction within the federation. And, you know, Rio, I mean, we had even less, we have, we had such little support going into Rio. We had just so much chaos with coaches, federation, that kind of thing. I mean, that Paralympic qualifier in 2015, that's the world championships, uh, world rowing championships, and that's able-bodied and para, we had to pay our way to go while our able-bodied teammates going to the same regatta, same goals. They, they were obviously paid for by Sport Canada. So it is brutal. And I mean, we had to fundraise a lot. You know, we just, it was, it was a very wild experience. That's change in Canada. That's change. And I think that, you know, helping to win Canada's first rowing medal, at the Paralympics in 2016, that, that bronze medal, that helped change things for, for para rowing in Canada. And so now there's a lot more funding, a lot more support, definitely treated as equals, you know, with regards to those two things. And I think it's, it's almost in a way it's brought more attention to the sport as well in Canada. Tokyo did a really good job of making para sport visible in Canada. And that was actually the CBC that decided to actually go and get actually video of some of the events. Now, not all of the events had live coverage for every event, but they did a much better job in Rio. There was no live coverage from CBC. So uh, in fact, my mom, who was, who was quite sick at the time, 
she couldn't come to Rio. My family couldn't come to Rio. And so they, they couldn't watch any live coverage from a Canadian source and see us win our medal. And that was, that was pretty disappointing. So I think the CBC has done a much better job of stepping up, you know, for Tokyo and, and making, you know, the Paralympic movement visible in Canada. There we go. That's good to hear. Now, as you may have detected from my accent, I'm not from around here. I was, I'm from Australia, born and raised. Cool. And I was a bit shocked, to be honest, because I it came to my attention that Tokyo was the first Paralympics where Australian athletes were rewarded if they had gone, had gone on to win a medal. What is the situation in Canada for uh, Paralympic medalists? Do they get some sort of reward from the government? Sadly, no. Sadly, we do not... Yeah, Rio, we did not get anything, not a dime. Weren't really even celebrated that much by, you know, our federation. And then Tokyo, to my knowledge, they're still not getting anything. And so the reason for that is it's it's sad, but, you know, in Canada, the Canadian Olympic Committee is is separate from the Canadian Paralympic Committee. Some countries, they're together. Like, so, for example, in the U.S., they're, they're together. It's similar to Australia in the U.S., if you win a medal at the Paralympic Games, you do get the cash cash reward, which is, you know, really important, actually, because a lot of athletes, you know, that go to the Paralympics and Olympics are amateur athletes. So it's actually a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And and so that's all to say in Canada, we don't have that because the two, you know, nonprofits are, are separate. And so the fundraising that happens for the medal bonus that the COC does, that is just the COC fundraising. The CPC, Canadian Paralympic Committee, does not fundraise, um, to my knowledge, for that. And, you know, I think that their operating budget is, is quite a bit smaller, obviously, than Canadian Olympic Committee. Um, my hope is that will change. That's one of the things I'm really passionate about because, I mean, we our training in Rio, we did just as much training. Uh, we made the same opportunity cost decisions. We We did nothing different. Um, and we were successful. We did our job, but you know, on the other side, it was a different experience. Mm-hmm. I really hope that changes um, down the line. You know, and I think it will because this visibility piece. I think that that's really important. And London 2012 actually did a really good job in the UK of of making para sport visible. And uh, London they changed a lot of the course of the Paralympic Games, which is so special. And they, you know, this the work that they did is it's still living. And, and I think, you know, the CBC stepping up and showing live coverage of the Paralympic Games is going to help. Um, it's going to take a little while still, but it's, it's definitely helping. Good. Yeah, I think visibility is everything because the more it's seen, the more it'll attract sponsors, investors. Totally. And it just grows the fan base because of it. It's, it's the lack of visibility that just generally kills sport. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it comes right totally. down to it. So. I think with the visibility, like you said, with CBC getting on board and actually starting to, to broadcast what's happening, that should bring in additional interest and that should kind of turn things around a little bit. That's the hope. So what is, what's next on, on tap for you? Good question. So this fall, I'm focusing on school. Doesn't sound as exciting as training for the <laughs> Olympic Games, but it's as an amateur athlete, it's something that's a reality. Yeah. I had a pretty serious head injury back in May of 2020 and then just another tiny one, uh, August, 2021. So rehabbing my, my head injury is something that's always on the forefront of my life. It seems like, so I've been a little bit focused on that. And then, you know, quite frankly, I think sharing our story, sharing, turning a fourth place crew into a gold medal crew in a year and a half was something that not a lot of people know about because we're into amateur sports. I've been really focused on sharing our story, elevating my teammates' voices, and uh, just making people aware of the good work our coach did. 
So, if you don't mind, take us through that. Was there anything in particular that was adjusted or that was changed to make that jump? That's a good question. So, uh, for us, we had a coach that didn't really have good culture. I mean, he really singled us out and and we kind of all felt like not super confident and yeah, pretty attacked over the years. And he was actually fired in February of 2020. So our coach, Michelle Darvel, she came in, in and she, she assessed the situation for what it was. She knew that we needed to change our team's culture. We always had the right people. Like I believe, you know, the Canadian women's group, it's a really special time for rowing in Canada for women. There's just, I mean, so many fantastic athletes. So we, I really believe we always had the right athletes, but it was really that trust and integrity piece that we needed to, to work on because in a rowing boat, I mean, you train day in, day out together and you could build trust, but you can also build a lot of animosity. And so when we came back together after our quarantine in July of 2020, we, we did a lot of Zoom calls. We did a lot of work on the team and we developed this mission, set of values and vision for the team. And, and this document, I think, really actually informed, you know, the next year into the Olympics. And some key points in there were, you know, making sure that we had habits that were visible to each other easy to understand, easy to follow and repeatable. And that, you know, that consistency piece, that was a cornerstone of our group. Another part was, you know, checking our ego at the door. I mean, that is such an easy thing to say, and it's so hard to do in practice. And we were not perfect all the time, but just the awareness of, you know, understanding that we are all working towards the same goal. We have commonality there and in commonality, you know, it allows people to bring their guard down. So we really tried hard to keep each other accountable to being honest and open and again, checking that ego whenever we got into the boathouse. I think another piece was just respecting individuality. And I know that sounds a bit fluffy, but for our coach, she wanted to focus us as on us as people first, athletes second. And in doing so, she allowed us to be our, you know, authentic selves. You know, I'm an introvert. I'm a little bit weird. And there's some people on the team that are extroverts and kind of the cool kids. And she just allowed each of us to be ourselves to an extent that, you know, allowed us to go outside of ourselves in daily training environment. And I think this is actually where we started to find that really amazing, really scary speed when we started to feel comfortable just being ourselves on a daily basis. So those are kind of the three points I would say help change that that culture, you know, from a fourth place crew in 2019 to first place crew in 2021. Amazing. And, and the beauty of that is that it's not just wrong specific. Those are transferable to life, the boardroom, relationships even. Yeah, I think. I think I might try and apply those. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a neat thing. I mean, we never really set out thinking, hey, we're going to go and do this and we're going to do this. But it just, you know, as people became more comfortable and as people, you know, let their guards down, the trust grew. And then it was like, oh, hey, we kind of like hanging out with each other. And oh, hey, like we kind of respect each other. And it just it grew and grew and grew from there. It was pretty cool. So, Kristen, we can find you on Twitter at KristenKit1. But where can we find you on Instagram and any other social media? At Kristen Kit is my Instagram handle. I'll be honest, I don't share on Twitter too, too much. But my my Instagram stays current. And, you know, the things I kind of share on Instagram are relating to the backstory behind our team. And I think it's kind of a neat thing to share with Canadians, with the world, because we were not supposed to win. We were a lesser known crew. And, you know, now people want to know what's going on. So it's, it's fun to share some of the backstory. And where can people find information on the, uh, the biking team that you're a part of? 
Yeah, so I'm an ambassador with Juliana Bicycles, and I'm focused on gravel. So you can just you can hit up their website now. Juliana Bicycles is the women's side of Santa Cruz Bikes, okay. and they're based in Santa Cruz, California. Obviously, and they've been really great to me. Actually, they've supported me as I transitioned out from road. The road race team that I am, you know, a huge fan of you know, that I was on for two years, Instafund La Prima Racing. And you can find them on both Facebook and Instagram. They, uh, again, are based out of Vancouver, BC, but they have a huge presence over in Europe, attending many UCI races. Do you have a power meter sponsor? I don't. I had one. I ha- I was with uh, 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 two different ones for a little while, but I, I don't have one right now and I'm looking. Stages, <laughs> if you're listening. There we go. Kit. Get involved. <laughs> <laughs> I would love a stage. They're the best. They really are. I actually ended up buying one and putting it on my gravel bike because I needed power and they're the most reliable. So yeah, they're great. Yeah, no, my wife uses stages. So that's the one I'm always pumping for, for everybody, basically. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. No, honestly, it's great talking to you, Kristen. This was cool. pretty interesting. Very unique story you've got. Great talking to you. Definitely. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. It was fun to do this. I mean, I don't get to just rant for 45 minutes so it was kind of cool perfect